0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of The Presumption of Innocence, a new podcast brought to you by the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice at Fox Rothschild. I'm your host today, Matthew Adams, and I am one of the co-chairs of our practice group. I have the great pleasure of being joined by Jessica Hollibaugh, CPA, who is a partner in the Forensic and Valuation Services Group at Witham. She also is the market leader of the Forensics, Investigations, and White Collar Criminal Defense Practice. Each episode of The Presumption of Innocence, we will feature a different guest where we will talk about and unpack a hot topic in the world of white collar criminal and regulatory enforcement. Today with Ms. Hollibaugh, we are going to discuss the Paycheck Protection Program and fraud enforcement that surrounds it. Let's jump right into it and talk a little bit about the background. As many of you may know, uh, the CARES Act was originally authorized into law by Congress on March 29, 2020. Among other things intended to to fend off the impact financially and economically from the COVID-19 pandemic, the CARES Act authorized the Paycheck Protection Program which created a $349 billion fund of forgivable loans that were intended for small business to ensure job retention and other certain expenses to keep businesses afloat during the pandemic and the related consequences that flowed from it. That PPP program has expanded dramatically. And there is even a second iteration that was signed into law at the early part of 2021. And what has resulted is a significant, significant amount of capital into the economy, stimulating uh, or intended at least to be stimulating small and mid-sized businesses and allowing for them to fend off uh, catastrophic failure. What we have come to find with PPP is that it is an area that I would call a target-rich environment for prosecution and regulatory enforcement action because of the inherent amount of fraud that has been brought into the program. And in, in a way, there is a tremendous overlap between what we do at Fox Rothschild, in our white collar practice, and what forensic accountants like Jessica do in her line of work. Jess, I wanna kick the first question to you about really what it is and what are the most frequent engagements that you have been doing the most of as it relates to PPP over the last year plus?
1: Sure. So, on, uh, first of all, thank you for having me today. This is very exciting to be part of the first podcast. Um, but as a forensic accountant, I, I've really been seeing PPP engagements on two ends of the spectrum. Um, the first end being as an expert in the litigation support role. So, as you just mentioned, there's been a lot of enforcement activity with respect to the PPP program. And some of these first cases were clearly more egregious examples, right? Companies didn't exist or companies that never had employees are now receiving large loan amounts but what we've been seeing more recently um, particularly as borrowers begin to file for forgiveness is that these investigations have begun to expand a bit more Um, and those investigations have really started to give rise to the need for forensic accounting support and then the second area there um, that i've been getting involved with is With the earlier stage, um, what I'll call consultative engagements, so as I just said and as you've mentioned, there has been an uptick in enforcement and as that increase in activity um, has been more highly publicized, that's really prompted many borrowers to take a step back before applying for forgiveness um, to ensure that they're in compliance with all the terms of the loan program. So in that respect, I've been brought in to consult on these matters under Covell arrangements with various attorneys.
0: Great. And and you mentioned something that's critically important to our discussion today, and that is this nature of a Covell arrangement. And and suffice it to say from the outset, this is a critical area where the accountant almost can be brought into the attorney-client privilege in a translation role. I think it's kind of funny because inherent in the Covell dynamic is this notion that lawyers are not very good at math, and I think that's probably true. Um, Covell really started because of this analogy to a translator. Just like a foreign language speaker cannot essentially communicate with their client without a translator interpreting what's being said, so too can a lawyer not effectively discharge their duties to a client without someone sometimes translating numbers and being able to interpret and trace and tick and tie if you will the various uh numbers that might be associated with the given circumstance uh and and the provision of legal uh, accounts, uh legal services that's associated with it and perhaps more so than in any other area maybe not maybe maybe rivaling tax but more so than most other areas, this whole idea of PPP investigations is one where that Covell dynamic is is so critically important. So it's really important to, to sort of set that forth at the outset and make sure everybody knows exactly why it is that accountants and lawyers are working so closely together in this particular area. It's also important to to just mention, I guess, from the outset that In the fall of 2020, a congressional subcommittee essentially determined that there was a woeful lack of internal controls associated with the Paycheck Protection Program, and from that, really the political argument began that this program was going to be wrought with with fraud and abuse, and from there, it has spawned. What I would argue is one of the largest white collar criminal investigations, or maybe will be the largest white collar criminal investigation when all is said and done in U.S. history. In let let's take Jess a little bit further, maybe unpack a little of the concepts that you just mentioned. I think the first you talked about was what you were doing with respect to consultative work for your clients, and um, I think you properly said that a lot of people are hearing about some of the enforcement activity that's going on, and they're getting worried that they might have either received the wrong amount or that when they make an application for forgiveness, there will be a a problem. What, and again, against the backdrop of that Covell relationship that I just described, what are the most uh, common types of accounting analysis that you're doing in that consultative type engagement?
1: Sure Matt, so like you just mentioned, this is, you know, largely borrowers that are are coming in and they're now seeking to apply for forgiveness and they have some type of concern with either the amount of the loan that they received whether it may have been miscalculated or um, a lot of these borrowers are ending up having very good financial years and they're getting to the end of this um, covered period and they're looking back and they wanna make sure now that their economic necessity certification can be fully supported. So the two most common types of analyses that I have been um, handling are first, the max loan calculations to determine if the loan amount which they received was appropriate And then second, we've been coming in and we've been doing some analysis on the projected cash flows, which the borrowers utilize to substantiate their economic necessity at the time of filing.
0: So let's start with that first one, the max award calculation. And I know you've done a number of those for my clients. What exactly do you do to assess the appropriateness or the accuracy of that maximum award award calculation for a client?
1: So that one's fairly straightforward. The PPP loans had a designated formula from which you would calculate the amount of loan that the company was eligible for. So in very basic terms, that formula is two and a half months of a company's 2019 average payroll cost. And the average payroll cost included gross payroll up to $100,000 per employee on an annualized basis, the employer's payment of state and local taxes, assessed on the wages, and employer contributions to group health and retirement plans unfortunately um, particularly in the beginning of the program there was a lot of confusion as to what could and could not be included in that payroll number or in that calculation and that's where we're really seeing um, a lot of errors where companies applied for and usually ended up receiving more funds than they were otherwise eligible
0: and you mentioned this idea of confusion and 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 the confusion leading to errors. And I, I want to be careful and say that, you know, an unintentional error is one thing and then a deliberate fraud is quite another thing. But there's a value-add proposition to, which we'll discuss in a moment, but uh, there's, a, there's a value-add proposition to, to ass- assessing whether you have either of those circumstances. Talking through the idea of problems with the max award calculation, and let's assume that, it's an unintentional problem. Uh, What are the most common errors that you're seeing as it relates to that, the maximum award calculation?
1: The, The most common error has actually originated from companies relying on PPP reports that were being generated from their payroll company, unfortunately. Um, So more often than not, the borrowers would get these PPP reports and assume they were correct without actually understanding what was being included in the numbers. And I'll give you an example. One of the the largest and most well-known payroll providers were originally generating PPP reports that included the employer portion of Social Security and Medicare taxes as an eligible payroll total. And as we just went through before, that's not something that should have been included in the loan amount. Um, So in that instance, many of the borrowers actually just relied upon that report that was being generated by their payroll provider and applied for an inflated loan amount. And similar along the same lines, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that the gross payroll calculated loan amount included up to $100,000 per employee on an annualized basis. And what we've seen a lot is that borrowers failed to account for the annualization component. With respect to that $100,000 limit. Um, so, with that $100,000 limit, if you had a workforce that was maintained throughout the entire 2019 year, it's a pretty straightforward calculation. But where we ended up seeing problems with this annualization component is when there was a turnover of a higher paying position. Um, and, you know, for example, if you had a CEO that made $150,000 in the first six months and ultimately left the company and a replacement CEO was hired. And they made $150,000 in the second month, second six months. What many of the companies were doing was allowing for $100,000 per each one of those employees when it really should have been annualized for the six months that each employee worked.
0: Let's unpack then the second of the two most common types of analysis that you talked about, which is this cash flow sensitivity analysis. What exactly is that?
1: So that uh, really boils down to the cash flow projections that the borrower relied upon in their economic necessity certification. So what we do in those situations is we perform a sensitivity analysis or it's really a test on the cash flow that they relied upon.
0: And how does that test work?
1: So. The first thing that you need to keep in mind as we are testing these cash flow analyses is although the borrower could be coming to us months later and may have prospered through COVID or done better than expected, the projection that they relied upon needs to be assessed as if we were standing back on the date that the loan was applied for. So generally, the first thing that we'll do is take a look at the borrower's projections that they used and we wanna understand the assumptions that they built into that analysis and, their reasoning for why those assumptions were used. And then what we do from there is we take a look at the historical financial statements, we review the company's operations and take a deeper look at that cash flow projection to uh, perform this sensitivity analysis. And what I mean by uh, sensitivity analysis to put it in in simpler terms is, for example, if the borrower projected uh, that revenues were going to decrease 75%, And by virtue of that 75% decrease, the bottom was going to drop out from underneath this company, and therefore they needed this PPP loan to survive. What part of our sensitivity analysis would do is fluctuate that percentage. For example, instead of using the 75%, if we assume that the borrower had projected revenues of only 50%, what does the cash flow then look like? And if fluctuating that decrease to 50%, 50%, resulted in the cash flow model um, projecting a positive cash position as opposed to the negative position that was obtained under the 75%. We now know that that revenue projection was a critical assumption. And what that allows us to do is go back and provide that information to council so that we're sure that we are able to support a reason that the borrower thought the 75% reduction was a reasonable estimate at the time.
0: And you hit the nail on the head right there when you said provide to counsel, and that really underpins the importance of the covel because there is risks and rewards to doing this. The reward is that if everything ties out the appropriate way, you can move forward with confidence. If there is some discrepancy or there are problems noted in that analysis, the the idea that it's protected by the Covell, uh privilege ensures that it doesn't see the light of day in the event of of, of a discrepancy, and also allows and affords counsel to operate and, and, and productively or proactively um, guide the client through corrective steps that might very well save them on the back end from a much more expensive and much more risky proposition like civil enforcement action or in the worst instance criminal enforcement action and i think just the two of us have worked on a number of these engagements together um, where we found a whole gamut of different types of outcomes when we do those types of max award calculations and cash flow analyses i'm thinking of a couple instances where uh, we found clients that were in the seven figures excessive of where they should have been as it relates to a max award calculation and to the same notion we've seen clients with significant cash flow on hand but when you do a a thorough analysis of uh, with with the guidance of a a forensic accountant like yourself you actually determine that that company's burn rate was such a at a high level that even though they might have presented as flushed with cash on, 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 on its face, they really um, didn't necessarily have the wherewithal to survive very long without the influx that the PPP loan provided. So I think when you, when you boil it down, the risk and reward of doing this under the protection of Covell, it's almost a no-brainer. Uh, we've had, I think, together a number of clients that had multi-million dollar PPP loans where the cost of conducting these types of collaborative exercises between accountant and lawyer under the protections of a covel were really worth their weight in gold. Can you talk a little bit about that particular facet, the value add of bringing this properly constructed covel accounting relationship into the attorney-client relationship in these instances? What's Talk, talk to us a little bit about the cost and the economics of that and how it might play out in real life
1: absolutely so i have been involved in these cases um, like i said on both sides of this spectrum in the consulting engagement and then later on in the investigations and litigation phase and i can tell you that what i've seen is once these investigations open um, they have been very fast moving and they have gotten expensive very very quickly So, what the consulting engagements are really allowing us to do is prepare ahead of time for any potential issues so that documentation is accumulated and proper actions are taken before any potential investigation is underway. And I I think what we've seen there is it's really saving the clients um, a lot of money in that regard.
0: And I know from working with you, there's a couple of instances where we've actually found other tax credits and like that were perhaps not initially apparent on their face. Can you speak a little bit to that in terms of what opening the hood and looking, uh, kicking the tires, so to speak, does for some of these other programs that might be out
1: there? Sure. So through many of the consulting agreements, what we found is that some of these companies were not only eligible for the PPP loan, but they were also eligible for the new credit, the employee retention credit. And this gets a bit tricky because the same wages can't be used for both the PPP loan forgiveness and the ERC credit. But what these consulting engagements have allowed us to do is to get in and assess their eligibility and make sure the companies are maximizing the benefits of both the PPP forgiveness and the ERC credit at the same time.
0: Now, shifting out of that consultative engagement for a moment, I want to start honing in on some of the more adversarial scenarios that we've also encountered in this particular space. I mean, there is generally no question that there has been a pretty significant amount of prosecutorial action in this space. I know we're going to talk about a case study that you've been involved in, in in a moment, but I think it bears noting for our audience that really the inherent character of white-collar investigations provides a little bit of an opportunity to push back on the government from the outset. And what that means is that maybe unlike a street crime where there is an event, the police investigated, and then there's an arrest, white-collar cases are generally the byproduct of a months, if not years-long investigation. Now, in some instances, these PPP cases have been exceptionally fast to be prosecuted, But the general nature and character of a white-collar investigation does afford some opportunity on the part of uh, a skilled criminal defense lawyer to actually interact with the government and influence charging decisions. Now, that influence could range anywhere from convincing a prosecutor not to pursue charges to potentially the opportunity to maybe uh, result in lesser charges that may have been on the table at the outset. And I think we've worked on a couple of these matters that have provided us with the opportunity to push back on the government's narrative through what I'll call a tracing exercise. Can you walk us through a little bit about how that plays out in a PPP investigation pre-indictment from the accountant's perspective?
1: Yeah, so many of these pre-action investigations, um, like you said, have been focused on tracing and it's essentially on the use of the funds. So after the date the borrower received these PPP funds, what the government is looking at is what was the activity in that account thereafter so that they can make a determination as to what the PPP funds were utilized for and whether they were utilized for the intended purpose. So one of the issues that we're seeing is that many companies utilized more than one bank account. So for instance, if PPP funds were deposited into one account, but all the payroll is paid out of another, it it, on its face, if you look at just the PPP account, it may look like the PPP funds aren't being used for their intended purpose. But under the theory that cash is fungible, um, we can actually combine all those accounts into one and provide a tracing analysis which can show different results alternatively i have done these tracing analyses and it hasn't provided the results we would hope it would so in some of those cases there may be um, you know the opportunity to maybe go in with a a different vision so maybe instead of focusing on this direct tracing during this phase we instead go in and demonstrate that during the 24-week period the borrower expended um, forgivable payroll amounts in excess of the ppp loan amount so i think it's just important to understand from the onset what the actual tracing is and what the results of that tracing are
0: yeah i agree i agree entirely that tracing analysis is critically important to trying to influence pre-indictment that is influence charging decisions and try to reset the narrative of a prosecutor Now, a lot has been made in connection with PPP about economic necessity, and I would say that this is one of those big and amorphous terms that is employed through the CARES Act and it's one of the certifications in the application for PPP. Quite frankly, it is an ill-defined concept that is somewhat objective but mixed in with somewhat of some subjective criteria if you look at things like the 3509, which was promulgated by the SBA as part of the forgiveness program and is now falling out of disfavor after it's been challenged. But when push comes to shove, Jess, I think that there's real problems for the government making a criminal case out of economic necessity because of all of the vagaries that surround it. But at the same token, economic necessity is such a vital portion of the real purpose behind PPP in the first instance and really is the bellwether prerequisite for qualifying for the program and in its, unto itself that I think much of what starts these investigations, at least, really a- arises from this perception or narrative by the government that companies sometimes got loans that they shouldn't have necessarily received just because they're trying to maximize on uh, on the receipt of free money, and that very well might be the case in certain instances, but in many instances, economic necessity, when you peel back the layers of the onion, if you will, will reveal all kinds of things that uh, m- might not be exactly visible on the surface. I mentioned one a short while ago as it pertained to cash flow and the idea that, yes, a company might have many millions of dollars on their books, but when you examine their expense activity, that could easily be depleted in a very short space of time due to the fact that their expense activity is just so high. What? are ways that, from use of this Covell forensic accounting analysis, you can help lawyers like, like me push back on the narrative that, or I should say the false narrative, that a company didn't really need the money, but they just wanted to maximize the opportunity to get free money from the government.
1: So I think that that narrative, and like you mentioned, really begins um, largely with companies that may have a large cash on hand sitting on their balance sheet. And you know, I think it's important to to note that cash on hand certainly isn't the end all be all. It's an easy number for the government to obtain. It sits flatly on the face of a bank statement. I'm sure it's something that they're going to take a look at but there's definitely legitimate arguments to be made about the need to preserve that cash for operations going forward. And one of those arguments is just your basic working capital argument, right? So historically, if the company has maintained cash in order to fund its operations, it's fairly clear that the cash is needed to be maintained on a going forward basis, right? COVID hasn't changed that. In fact, it probably made it worse. And then some of the other arguments can be, you know, much more specific to the company. Um, and I can give you an example, one, one being professional service companies. And going into COVID, many of these service companies were deemed to be essential, um, but they had valid concerns that the individuals or the companies that owed them money, their receivables, um, were going to be impacted by slow payments but those service companies still had a fixed cost structure. They still had to pay salaries, they still had to pay rent and equipment leases and bank loan payments. So even though they may have been considered essential and are continuing to operate, there was a cash burn rate that was embedded into their projections um, where this extra cash was going to be needed to keep the entity afloat during this period of uncertainty. And yeah. you know, some some of the other arguments that I've come across are much more, you know, company or industry specific. Um, you know, one one company that I came across and, you know, operated in commodities and, and really needed to maintain cash to consider fluctuations in prices. Um, I had another company that experienced supply chain issues. Um, so they were being forced to split their purchases between various vendors. And in that instance, we were able to support their need for additional cash because there was going to be this uncertainty in the changes in their cost, along with shorter payment terms that were going to be required. So I think we, there's certainly a lot of arguments to be made with respect to economic necessity.
0: Yeah, and I, I can think of a couple of examples as well in terms of where we're analyzing cash flow and the idea of potentially a line of credit is considered and whether or not that was uh, appropriately drawn down before going to the PPP well, so to speak. And in, in a couple of instances, the need to preserve that line of credit was really an industry-specific thing. And, and you mentioned the commodities in terms of the line of credit being a, 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 protect, a hedge or a protection against overnight fluctuations in that commodity. And during the, the pandemic, we certainly saw market forces at play causing dramatic ebbs and flows and fluctuations in in certain um, commodity prices from oil to other other things uh, that really need to be considered on an industry-by-industry basis. Now, let's shift out of that pre-action investigation role, and let's get right down to it. Assume all bets are off, and... You mentioned that you're working in the the sort of litigation support role you'll I think you'll agree with me at that point in time. all efforts have essentially um, either failed at the intervening from an outset or they failed to capitalize on the opportunity to do this consultive kind of engagement or you know they just couldn't do it quick enough, and the government beat them to the punch there are literally at this point, hundreds if not thousands of cases where PPP fraud has been prosecuted. And there are criminal actions that are filed against borrowers for failure to do any number of things appropriately as it relates to this PPP program. I mentioned at the outset there was this sort of target-rich environment. And I use that phrase a lot when referring to PPP because The way that the PPP program was administered, it invoked literally dozens and dozens of federal criminal statutes from anywhere from a false statement to an SBA, uh, to the SBA rather, to a false statement to a bank, to simple uh, lying to a federal investigator who might be coming to conduct an audit from something that emanated out of a SAR report or other compulsory financial reporting that banks are required to do. This whole area is just kind of exploding right now. And it's a good opportunity for me to give a, a little bit of a plug to something that Fox Rothschild is doing. We have a what we're calling our fraud prosecution tracker, where we are in real time tracking the number of new filings associated with the whole array of COVID-19 stimulus-related uh, cases throughout the United States. Uh, we're tracking those in real time, and we're making those available to the public. If you'd like to uh, subscribe to our Fraud Prosecution Tracker, please give me a, a, an email at madams, M-A-D-A-M-S, at foxrothchild.com, and I'd be happy to have our team add you to the Fraud Prosecution Tracker so that you can get real-time updates on these, Very emerging area of the law. So you can start to see some of the trends that arise from where the government is sinking its resources. Now, I know, Jess, that you happen to be in a prime litigation support role in one of the, if not the first case to go to criminal trial related to PPP fraud in the United States. And that is. The Crowther case in the middle district of Florida now I'd like to talk to you about that, but i'll I'll make it known that I'm only going to ask you questions that speak to things that were revealed during the public trial. I don't want you to reveal any confidences, and I know you wouldn't anyway, but uh, I want to make that known to our audience that I'm only asking questions about things that went on and and the observations from trial but Jess, I understand that during the Crowther case, at trial, an SBA expert testified, and what were the highlights of that testimony?
1: So we've been talking a lot about economic necessity today, and actually one of the key takeaways from the Crowther trial was that the government's SBA expert um, did come in and testify specifically to what economic necessity was and his testimony was um, very much what we've been speaking about today, was that the certification was in the eyes of the borrower as of the date of the application. And Matt, I'm sure you can explain a bit more about you know, why that's important in terms of future enforcement. Um, but what we did see in the Crowder case was that the government didn't necessarily put on a case directed at economic necessity, but they did use economic necessity kind of as a backdrop to their other arguments.
0: Yeah, I, I can tell you that it's going to be very difficult to make a a fraud case rooted entirely about economic necessity, simply because the essence of a fraud is the intent to to defraud, and and that enter or mens rea or or culpable mental state, if you will is required to be proved by or beyond a reasonable doubt by the government. And in light of testimony like that, that it's in the eyes of the borrower, which is a really a subjective kind of approach, it's very difficult to make out that level of proof. It, it also, you also pointed to something very important, though. I think that these cases are colored by, the government's narratives either for or against economic necessity. So while a case might not be entirely predicated upon economic necessity, I certainly think that as it relates to triable issues, now we're talking about we've, we've left the consultative, we've failed or didn't get there in time to sort of convince the government otherwise in the pre-action phase, and now we are at trial I think there's a lot of jury appeal to tr- to the government trying to say things like, wow, look at this cash flush company coming in here trying to borrow your money. Did you hear a lot of things like that at the trial? Your money, your money, taxpayer dollars, things of that nature? We heard
1: a lot of that. Taxpayer dollars. Who's going to be forced to pay this? It's going to be the taxpayers that will pay it. So that was that was definitely the backdrop of their narrative.
0: And from a defense perspective, right, to preserve that presumption of innocence, you really do need to be able to beat back that narrative. So while I don't think it can form the basis for a standalone criminal prosecution, it it can't be ignored. Now, did anyone from the bank testify at trial during the Crowther case?
1: So again, you know, similar to the government's SBA expert, um, they did have the government did put on a bank representative um, from the bank, and you know it was, it was pretty interesting because the bank representative took the stand and testified clearly that the bank was not injured and did not feel that they were a victim of the loan.
0: Did they articulate why?
1: Because it was a performing loan, and they had not lost any money on it.
0: And uh, uh, assumedly, then, this prosecution occurred before forgiveness, correct? Correct. Anything else about tracing that came up during the trial? We've talked a little bit about that today, and if we're going to use your experience with at least the public available, uh, publicly available rather aspects of the Crowther trial, um, did anything touching on tracing come up that we can learn from?
1: Absolutely, so the government argued in the Crowder case that the PPP funds were deposited into a segregated account, not into the company's general operating account. And then the government presented to the jury a snapshot of just that one segregated account, which included a transfer um, to a marina after the receipt of the PPP funds. So in that presentation, what the government was arguing was that the $700,000 transfer to the marina was a boat purchase um, that came directly from PPP funds. And Crowler's attorneys, you know, argued the opposite. And they argued that the government's presentation failed to account for this fungibility of cash and that forgivable expenses had already been paid out of the operating account during that 10-day period. So it wasn't correct to just look at that um, segregated account. I mean, ultimately, the jury convicted um, and one of those charges was specifically for an illegal monetary transaction related to that $700,000. But I think the importance here is that it it really sheds some light on the direction that the government may go in some of these investigations, um, which in this instance was performing a direct tracing of proceeds, instead of stepping back and taking that broader look at the overall 24 week period to see if forgivable expenses um, were utilized in that 24-week period.
0: Yeah, and I think as a proactive step, that kind of highlights something I've been telling clients since this whole thing began, which is segregate, segregate, segregate that money, and put it in a separate account. And in, in that instance, it's pretty remarkable that the defendant the, did segregate the money as I understand it from what we're saying today. And notwithstanding segregating the money, the government just did the direct tracing and suggested you know to heck with whatever else you've got in your bank accounts and ignoring this idea of fungibility i think there's some issues that are probably ripe for appeal and we're going to learn even more about this subject as this case unfolds and certainly it's one worth watching because as i understand it, again it's probably the first case that went to trial related to ppp and there's been a couple more since but um, at least from some of the precedential value of of what I understand to be uh, an appeal process that may very well follow, Uh, we'll be watching closely as some of these issues get flushed out. Because I I think for the jury to have ignored that fungibility issue uh, may present some opportunities on appeal. Let's move then to some of your observations from sentencing because as you mentioned uh, Mr Crowther unfortunately uh, was was convicted Um, and as I understand it you actually testified during his sentencing and what what was the nature of your your testimony again we're focusing on what went on in a public forum and, and during that proceeding not anything that was related to work you did for the defense in any other capacity?
1: Sure. So in very, very simple terms, you know, I testified that during the 24-week covered period of the PPP loan, the business paid uh, $3.5 million of expenses that were eligible for forgiveness under the guidelines. And this was in stark contrast to a PPP loan of only $2.1 million. So what we were showing is that not only did the company over this 24-week period maintain its payroll, which was the intent of the PPP program, but they actually paid $1.4 million more in these eligible forgivable expenses than would have been needed to qualify for full forgiveness of the loan.
0: Why was your focus on forgivable expenses?
1: So with respect to the loss amounts for sentencing the government was arguing that the full amount of the loan so all 2.1 million should be considered as the loss amount. The purpose of my testimony was really to show that the loan was used for its intended purpose and in fact was used beyond the amount required and therefore the argument was there was no loss.
0: So bottom line is you were saying that there was cash on hand plus the PPP funds and when you subtracted the forgivable expenses, there was enough forgivable expenses to consume the entirety of that pot of money regardless of, of where it came from. Is that, am I correctly understanding that?
1: Ultimately, what we were doing is taking a step back and saying, okay, instead of looking, this, looking at this on a day-by-day basis, let's take a step back and look at the 24-week covered period. Uh, because the the forgiveness application does not require you to outline the exact expenses that were incurred, you know, every day. It just requires you to provide the total forgivable expenses that were expended during the 24 weeks. So that's what we did. We took that step back and we looked at what was expended during that full 24 week period.
0: Well, it sounds to me like you uh, you guys took an approach to sentencing that is reasonable, given the fungibility of money. And I suspect that we might even hear from an appellate court later about some of the appropriateness of the the, the right calculation, as, as they view it, on how law should be ascribed to the defendant for purposes of sentencing. And just so our audience is aware, under Section 2B1.1 of the Federal Sentencing Guidelines, the loss really drives the sentence because while there are some other uh, you know, nature and characteristics of the offender and nature and characteristics of the offense that drive the Federal Sentencing Guidelines, the primary driver of those guidelines in a fraud case under 2B1.1 and the loss tables that are found there really are the loss figure. and that cuts directly to the amount of jail that a particular defendant sees when they get convicted of one of these offenses related to PPP fraud or abuse. What ultimately did the judge decide, Jess, as it relates to sentencing?
1: So he ultimately determined the loss amount was the total of three um, identified payments that were made during the covered period, which the government had argued were disallowed under the program. One of which being a purchase of a boat, another being a payment on a loan to a former business partner, and the third being a principal payment on the business line of credit.
0: So that's pretty remarkable. The, the judge neither bought your argument, the defense argument, nor bought the government's argument that the entirety of the loan was the, the appropriate loss. So am I am I am I reading that correctly? Correct. Wow. So like like I said, I think there. We're, we're likely to see some more on that from an appellate court down the down the line. Well, Jess, I think I, I can't thank you emu- enough for joining us today on this our first ever episode of the Presumption of Innocence uh, podcast, and I, I I I look forward to the possibility of revisiting this subject as things in this case and 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 the practice that you're engaged in as it relates to PPP fraud and abuse play out in the future. Again, I want to just once again reiterate that the Fox Rothschild PPP fraud tracker, fraud prosecution tracker, is available for our listeners. Uh, and just please shoot me an email at madams at foxrothschild.com and I'll make sure that we get you signed up for that. That's all the time we have for today. And we thank you a lot for joining us and uh, look forward to the possibility of joining us again for future editions of the Presumption of Innocence, where we will unpack, dissect, and discuss the hottest topics in white-collar criminal defense and regulatory compliance. I'm Matt Adams, one of the co-chairs of the practice. I'd like, to Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.